Welcome to the 13th episode of ThoughtSpace, the podcast from the Center for Policy Research. CPR is an Indian think tank researching on various issues from urbanization to foreign policy, from economic reforms to environmental challenges. Today, Richard Bansal from the communications team will be in conversation with Associate Professor Nimi Kurian, who has worked considerably on the India-China water dialogue to deconstruct the importance of the Brahmaputra for both countries. They will talk about the significance of the river, the reasons for the tensions between India and China on the Brahmaputra, and the way forward. Hi, I'm Richa and welcome to the podcast, Nimi. So let me begin by asking you, could you briefly introduce us to the Brahmaputra? I'm glad you asked the question about uh, introducing uh, the Brahmaputra because um, as a, a river like Brahmaputra really uh, has several distinctions to its credit. Um, let's look at the name first. As you may be aware, the Brahmaputra is really known as the Yarlung Sangpo in China. Now, the name Yarlung Sangpo itself comes from the Yarlung Valley in, in Tibet, uh, which is actually in many ways uh, known as the cradle of the Tibetan civilization. So it's very similar to um, many of the great uh, river valley civilizations that developed along major rivers. So, for example, the Nile, Nile Valley um, in Egypt, or it's the Indus Valley in the Indian subcontinent, or the Yellow River Valley in, in China. China. Um, the similarly, the uh, Yarlung Valley is um, known as the um, because it developed along the banks of the along the Yarlung uh, river, uh, the Sangpo River. It is uh, known as a cradle of the Tibetan civilization. So, as I mentioned earlier, there are several distinctions to this uh, river. One of them is really that it is the highest river in the world. For instance, it rises. The, the Yarlung Sangpo rises from a height of no less than sixteen thousand feet from the Chema Yungdung glaciers high up in Tibet as it makes its way uh, down. But perhaps the most fitting um, and most important from our, the point of view of our discussion really uh, in terms of, a dis- uh, of an introduction to the river is really that it is a transboundary river. And the Brahmaputra River Basin is shared by four countries. So it's called is, the Brahmaputra once it enters India, am I right? That's right. So it's the Yarlung Sangpo um, uh, in Tibet and once it enters it's um, it's called the Brahmaputra. Further down in Bangladesh, it's called the Jamuna. But the basin itself has four is shared by four countries, and it's a little known fact that it's shared by India, China, Bhutan, as well as Bangladesh. The reason that the transboundary aspect is the most significant way to introduce a river like the Brahmaputra is quite simply because the Brahmaputra happens to be the source of source of water for a huge mass of humanity living in South Asia and Southeast Asia. And just to give you a quick example, no less than 10 of Asia's biggest rivers originate in the Tibetan Plateau, whether it is including the, the, the Sutlej, the uh, Salveen, Indus, Iravadi, the uh, the Mekong, as well as the Brahmaputra. So as you can see, the as a river, the Brahmaputra can pack quite a powerful punch. Thanks for that, Nimi. Uh, 
clearly the Brahmaputra is a very important river from what you tell us. Can you now highlight the significance of uh, the Brahmaputra further? Why is it so important? Delve into it. Okay, Richard. Now, that's that could be a really a, a tricky question because a lot of that actually depends on whom you are speaking to. Uh, let's take a few examples. Uh, let's look at three actors and look at how they in turn would uh, look at their, how, how they in turn would see the significance of the uh, Brahmaputra. For instance, if you were to ask this question to a, China, uh, to a policy maker in China, he is likely to say that the Brahmaputra or the Yarlung Sangpo is the answer to North China's severe water crisis. Right. Now that is incidentally a fact. North China's water tables have been declining steadily and, and so China has this mega $62 billion uh, south to north water transfer uh, uh, scheme. And one of the routes, and there are three essential routes that they have designed, one of the routes essentially involves transporting waters from the Yarlung Sangpo to North China. So if you ask the Chinese policy makers for, for, maker, for him the Brahmaputra is very much like a lifeline and he is going to draw on it, technology and funds permitting. A second is if you were to ask for instance the same question to a hydraulic engineer, he is most, most likely to drool at the very prospect of exploiting this vast hydro, hydropower potential of the of the Brahmaputra, which is estimated at a, 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 a mind-boggling 200,000 megawatts. A hydraulic engineer is likely to be lost in calculations of how much of the cusecs of water Brahmaputra holds, what are the flow rates, what are the discharge volumes. Now, if you wanted a starkly different understanding of what the Brahmaputra means, try asking this question to a Tibetan. Right. And what essentially this would mean. It's an interesting exercise and give you a sense of how vastly different interpretations are possible. You're essentially moving from the material to the, to the metaphysical. So for the Tibetan, for the average Tibetan, the, the Brahmaputra is sacred geography. It's part of sacred lands such as the fabled Pemako. And for in, and according to legend, the it's the Yarlung Sangpo that connects the sacred fabled land of Pemako to to uh, to Tibet's most uh, sacred uh, mountain, which is Mount Kailash. So in a in a sense, you get from the tangible to the intangible, from the material to the metaphysical. So the quick short point I'd like to emphasize in this when we talk about the significance of a river like Brahmaputra is that you cannot privilege any one understanding of the Brahmaputra. You cannot privilege the tangible material um, uh, understanding and, and dismiss the intangible metaphysical understanding of, of this. That's the short point. That's very interesting, uh, Nimi, uh, the, dif the fact that we can't really differentiate between the tangible and the intangible significance of the Brahmaputra. Uh, so why is the Brahmaputra today at the center of tensions between India and China? I would say there are two aspects that often go missing when we talk about why the Brahmaputra is um, a controversial issue today in India-China relations. One is really 
the perception and the other is reality perception and reality form two different um, aspects which are often glossed over in a debate that we have seen and very often i would say of the perception of reality or perception of china's moves as an upper riparian and its resource choices and the reality of it could very well be diametrically Opposite. opposite or different or distinct from each other need not really coincide so what so, is the perception so the perception really is very often when you when you look at the core aspect in a shared basin um like the brahmaputra is the criticality of perception right or wrong and this very often becomes the vector through which the actions of an upper riparian are refracted so for instance if the lower you know riparians or communities riparian communities living downstream um hold the upper riparian responsible for in a range of livelihood setbacks whether it's floods or droughts then this is in my opinion a perception need not you know uh, corroborate with evidence this regional sentiment as i would call it is something that uh china's public diplomacy needs to seriously engage with so this is the perception what is the actual uh, bone so, of contention so the bone of contention really if you were to look are several really for a start china has built the 540 megawatt power project at zangmo and is constructing three more uh, power projects now the the real tricky bit is that we don't know there are huge Sambo gaps samo is in the yalong sangpo yes region. the tricky bit is that there are huge gaps in our knowledge base we don't simply don't know enough so for instance china has very often said that these are run of the river projects and therefore will have hardly any impact downstream now the real question is do a what to what is the impact of a bunch of run of river projects are they all going to be benign do do they are, are we very certain that they'll have absolutely no impact on the flows of a river for instance do a several run of the river uh, projects amount to any um, uh, impact on the flows of a river there are fears downstream that the cumulative impact of many of these projects could make the brahmaputra a seasonal river so they, these are fears which are very acutely felt in downstream uh, regions and perhaps also as a result of this there is an interministerial expert group on the brahmaputra has actually called for a close monitoring of the 39 run of the river projects on the brahmaputra this interministerial group is, is of in india, india. Okay. india's interministerial um, expert group on the brahmaputra has actually called for a close monitoring of 39 run of the river projects upstream um, in the yarlung sangpo thanks for that um, nimi so what then is the sort of cooperation that india has with china currently on the brahmaputra so what india and china have is a data sharing agreement and what india and china don't have is a water treaty so now you may well ask if a data sharing agreement isn't a useful mechanism of course it is a useful mechanism because it's an it can in many ways be a very powerful early warning system as a flood forecasting mechanism 
and the need for one was brought home in a very tragic manner in early in 2000 when flash floods in tibet actually went on to result in huge destruction in arunachal as well as in himachal pradesh so subsequent to that the lack of an information sharing agreement back then actually led to um, avoidable loss of lives and property and subsequent to that india and china now have a hydrological information sharing agreement in place which essentially means that china will give to india annual payment of rupees 82 lakhs hydrological information from three stations in tibet from 15th may to 15th october coming to the water treaty yes now china is very often you know given assurances that as an upper riparian it will acknowledge and respect the rights of uh, of downstream countries now my problem with that is that as a promissory it's all very fine but the hard fact still remains that india and china do not have a water treaty now why this becomes problematic is because very often misinterpretations run-ins and sort of conflict becomes very very imminent if you don't have institutionalized mechanisms of cooperation uh, for instance some months ago when china diverted the one of the tributaries of the brahmaputra it actually led to a, a lot of paranoia in india and that is precisely uh, because we don't have neither a treaty in place nor any institutionalized mechanisms to look at concerns like these so i would say right now to answer your question about this nature of india china cooperation on water i would say that hydrological data sharing is a step in the right direction is a good first step but it is really essentially a low hanging fruit and there's several issues that remain missing from the agenda of an india china water dialogue so i'd say that right now our cooperation with china is really like a glass half full so coming to the missing issues that you mentioned what in your opinion should find a place in the india china water dialogue so richard you know what's problematic in india and china's water uh, dialogue is that india's discourse on um the brahmaputra and the uh, water dialogue with china subsequently has actually unwittingly ended up being a single issue debate such uh, which is basically fixated on water diversion uh, which is to say that to basically obsess over will china divert or not now that in my opinion is actually not very helpful because to be fixated by being fixated on diversion uh, and making that a single issue debate uh, what it has essentially done is that it has diverted attention away from equally important issues which do not find a place on the india china water um, agenda so which are uh, so one of the issues for instance uh, which uh, so let me look let's look at a list of perhaps 2 uh, to 3 such missing issues one of them i would say the issue of water quality so even within uh, china for instance there's a fair bit of concern about the quality of the water waters that will reach north china as a result of its internal uh, south to north water diversion scheme and now research by um 
Chinese scientists have actually shown high incidence of heavy metals and tailings in the in the waters of the Yarlung Sangpo, and many of these are likely to find their way downstream to India and Bangladesh. So that is something which we have not yet looked at. Both mainstream research and policy have tended to kind of gloss over this. And why do they do that? It's because they have been fixated with just water diversion. So I think we need to actually look beyond that. A second is really to look at something which is far more frightening, which is the likelihood of dam-induced earthquakes. Uh, research by Chinese scientists have shown that uh, the devastating Sichuan earthquake of 2008, which resulted in 80,000 deaths, was could have been triggered by the Zipping Pu Dam in Sichuan. Now, this is something why is, which I said is far more frightening and which we have completely not, at least mainstream research and policy have not yet begun to understand the gravity of this. Because if you just take a quick historical uh, snippet, Assam earthquake of 1950 was not quote unquote an Indian earthquake. It had its origins in, in Rima in, in Tibet you begin to get a sense of how these are connected ecologies and connected geographies. So unless you, you are conscious of this, you will actually miss and bypass some of these crucial issues which need to find a, uh, find a place on the, on the table. And so a third quick point is what I mentioned earlier about the cumulative impact of run of the river projects and its effect downstream and its effect on the health of the waters of the Brahmaputra. Given these multiple ripple effects, I think water management, I would argue, should be seen as a regional public good. But are we making this causal link? And if so, how are we framing it? You might have read in today's paper, papers something very heartening, which has direct relevance to our conversation today about a ruling by the Uttarakhand High Court declaring both the Ganga and the Yamuna as quote-unquote living persons. And earlier uh, last week, I think the New Zealand, um, uh, in New Zealand, the Maori tribe so won a brilliant victory when the Wanganui River won the right as a legal entity. Now, the court ruled that the tribe and the river are now to be seen as one and what it essentially means is that harming the river means harming the Maori tribe. So to give a legal identity to the Ganga and the Yamuna for instance means the river has legal rights like you and I. So that's the sort of raises the larger question or the real challenge between Indian and Chinese public diplomacy is this whether we can frame some of these uh, questions so as to create institutional entry points for issues that are currently, uh, as I said, missing from the mainstream research and policy um, gaze. And so how can you des design uh, norms of benefit sharing, allocate risks and burdens and uh, negotiate trade-offs is, is going to be the real challenge that Indian and Chinese public diplomacy, research and policy both need to kind of address. 
So that brings me to the last question. Are there then any actionable ideas you have through which this can be achieved? Okay, uh, first things first, I think what we really need is to, uh, to build habits of trust. But to build habits of trust, you really first need to get used to the idea of cooperation. That is, has to be the first. And I can think of several examples or actionable ideas, as you've mentioned, to in, in ways in which this can be done. I could think of perhaps two or three. The first could be joint studies by Indian and Chinese scholars and scientists to plug many of the um, gaps in the knowledge base that I mentioned early on exist on the Brahmaputra. So, to, uh, so what this would essentially do would be, this would be a very powerful confidence building measure in itself. Uh, because I, if I could just dip into the institutional history of the Mekong River, for instance, it's very interesting that the Mekong River Committee invested the first few decades of its institutional history to just data gathering projects. And the takeaway for me there is that it's actually was an exercise getting the group, a disparate group of countries united by a, a river to just get used to the idea of cooperating, to build habits of trust. So that I would think is the first that India and China could do as an act, one of the actionable ideas. A second could be is a sharing of dry, lean season flows of the Brahmaputra. Right. Like as I mentioned, we already have an agreement to share hydrological information. Flood forecasting information is already in place. We need, and because it's a glacier-fed river, dry, lean season flows are going to be critical for uh, people living downstream. And, and here, China, for instance, has already agreed to provide dry season uh, flows to the Mekong. To, to the Mekong countries. Now, if it were to extend that to, uh, to the Brahmaputra as well, that, in my opinion, would be a significant um, uh, confidence-building measure from on the part of China. A third actionable idea that I could think of is really we need institutionalized platforms and exchanges between um, Indian and Chinese and one platform that could be useful is the India-China uh, provinces and states leaders forum. Uh, there's a forum that was recently set up by Prime Minister Modi and uh, President Xi Jinping. But this is a forum would, which could be ideal to bring together a set of stakeholders that are currently missing from the India-China water conversation, which is the Indian provinces, Indian states and Chinese provinces, which is like Assam, Arunachal and Tibet, for instance, also need to, to find a place in, in the India-China water co conversation. It's simply not enough for Beijing and New Delhi to be talking on issues that have direct local impact on regions which are currently not represented in this. And so that would be a, a very powerful confidence building measure to find a place for, for these underrepresented, unrepresented actors. So the, the long and short of it is that you bring in 
missing stakeholders into the India-China water conversation and you automatically bring in the missing issues. So that would be the ideal way, I would think, to kind of build trust. That's a good note to end on and thank you for this wonderful podcast, Nami. I personally learned a lot from it. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode of Thought Space and want to learn more about the research CPR does across various topics, please subscribe to our mailing list and social media channels through our website www.cprindia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at CPR underscore India.